Let's go now to God's Word as we begin our series um, for Advent. The scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer. And Azer, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Elazar, and Elazar, the father of Madam, and Madam, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, oh. <laughs> We're still going. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus says the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You just had to read it. I've got to preach on it. That's, I'm the one that's got the hard job here. No, thank you, Kelsey. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you're a God of the ages. We rejoice that generation after generation after generation after generation that you are God and you are at work and you are faithful 
And you are always accomplishing your plan, even when it doesn't seem like it or feel like it. Father, even when it seems like you have vanished and you are dead, you are not. So God, I pray this morning that you would use your word to open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts and minds to see Jesus, to see you and all your power and all your might and in all your grace and mercy. Father, I pray that you would come by your spirit and work among us. If change is going to happen, it's going to be by your spirit and not by your preacher and even not by your individual believers. So Holy Spirit, come, be poured out upon us to change our hearts, to give us the gift of repentance, to help us to think thoughts after you that are good and right and true. God, move our lives toward toward beauty and order and honor and glory and love and joy and peace. Oh, Father, would you bring healing to this body this morning? We need you that we might be healing agents in your world as the people of God, as Israel, as your church. So, God, would you come by your might? Father, I need you desperately. Would you order my thoughts? Would you order my words? Father, help me to be faithful to your word. May Jesus be lifted up. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want you all to finish this line for me. And I tell you what, I want the boys up here on the front row to finish this line. I want to see if any of y'all can finish this line. Y'all ready? Tonight, you're not yet, right here, front row. Tonight we're going to party like it's... Exactly. (laughs) I knew it. You shouldn't know that because of your age. Now the rest of us, old people, tonight we're going to party like it's 1999. See, these guys don't get it. I'm glad you don't get it or it would have ruined my point. Uh, Here's the point. We are 2,000 years removed from this genealogy. And so when we read it, we go, what? So? In fact, even preachers are inclined to skip over it and get to the meat, get to the heart of the passage. And yet God is saying something to us here. Matthew is saying something to us here. You see, Jesus didn't just uh, pop up right after the fall. (laughs) Jesus didn't just come on the scene after Adam and Eve uh, were created and they fell and then there's Jesus. But there was a history, there were a few thousand years of God working with His people, preparing them for this announcement. And it's full of meaning, and it's full of hope, and it's full of life. And for us just to skip over it, number one, we lose out, and we really miss the message of Jesus, and we miss the the message of the New Testament. And therefore, we really miss the story. I was thinking about this this week, you know, after The Wizard of Oz was written, Wicked was written. And so to really get the meaning of The Wizard of Oz, you've got to go back and read Wicked or watch Wicked or see Wicked on Broadway. To to really get The Lord of the Rings, that's a great story and you can get it, but to really get it, you need to go back and read The Hobbit. And you can say the same thing for practically any story that is in a sequel. Mockingjay 2 would be nothing without Hunger Games or uh, Catching Fire or Mockingjay 1. We can just Harry Pot, we can go on and on and on. 
to really get the story, you've got to get deep into the whole context. And that's what the gospel writers are doing. Matthew, it is important to Matthew to say this is a Jewish Messiah. This is the Messiah of Israel, not just of Adam and Eve. (laughs) But this is the Messiah of Israel, and to get it, you've got to go back. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King. There was a whole lot of history. God had been revealing himself to Israel for a few thousand years. And and those that that were waiting for Jesus had a certain perception of who God is, and I want to say that it's very different from ours. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, Fiddler on the Roof. Um, It's a good play. Probably the reason I do is because one of my daughters or a couple of my daughters were in the Fiddler on the Roof in high school, and so I had to watch it ad infinitum. Uh, I got really connected with the story, and I've seen it multiple times since, but it's the story of a Jewish family and a Jewish uh, community set in Russia in 1905, and it's all about tradition. I mean, that's the song, if you've heard a musical, if you, if you watch the music, tradition, tradition, you know, it just kind of goes on from there. Now you see why I was never on Broadway, but uh, maybe I chose the right profession, I hope. But, but it's the story of God's people and how God's people lived according to the law of God and how the law of God shaped every aspect of life. And as the the younger generation comes along and tries to press against um, the laws of God and and press against the tradition and, and the culture that's been established, the older generation would push back and say, but but God says. And God is ruling over every part of life. Over the last seven years, a question that I've been mulling over has been the question of how have we gotten to the place we are in the church today? How have we gotten to this place where in Memphis, Tennessee, and we've said it numerous times, we can be one of the most church cities in the country and yet the poorest city in the country? Like literally, like what happened? And though there are a lot of answers to that, I think one of the primary things that happened is the church left out and and skipped over and kind of abandoned the Old Testament. We we kind of went on, and and the revivalist movement of the 1800s and the Great Awakening 1, 2, and 3, focusing on, and even mid-1900s with Billy Graham, and I love Billy Graham, and I love uh, the message of the gospel for conversion. But that is, has been the primary focus of the biblical message, so much so that we read Adam and Eve, oh, we were created perfect, then we fell, but here's Jesus. And if you leave out the Old Testament, if you leave out the people of God and the, the history of God's people uh, throughout the ages, you really miss a, a huge portion of, of what God is calling us to be and do. Jesus was born the hope of Israel. A faithful Jew, when Jesus came, saw himself 
as created in the image of God. Why? Because Genesis 1 and 2 ruled his, his world and life view. He knew he was created by God in his image, and he knew he was created for a purpose. He knew that he was created to live for the glory of that God. He was to rule and have dominion over the earth, and he was to multiply and increase in number. But you see, it wasn't just work and have babies. But throughout history, when kings ruled, they they saw themselves as deities and the people received them as deities. And they built temples unto themselves, and in the middle of those temples, they would put statues of themselves. But what did God do? God created the world, and where did he put his statue? All over the world. You see, God has shown in Genesis 1 and 2 that this world is this tabernacle, this world is this sanctuary, and his heart and his passion, his desire is to walk with his people in his garden, in his creation. But Genesis 3 happened, and the world is broken, and God can't walk among his people because they're evil. But there's one coming. We see that in Genesis 3, but we also see it in the promise to Abraham. One is coming. It is through Abraham and through his seed that the whole world will be blessed. Do you see? This is forming. This is shaping. This is determining life for a Jewish believer. We are the people of God, and it's through us that the whole world is going to be blessed. And we see as David is promised that a king is coming and that king is going to sit on David's throne and he will reign for how long? Forever. And there will be healing and righteousness and judgment. Listen to Isaiah chapter 61. Listen, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. You see that? God's people are blessed so that God is glorified among His people. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to to sprout up before all the nations. Do you see it? God, the God who comes is not some marginalized God over here to the side who just brings personal salvation to a people so that they can go accomplish their dreams. But the God, Yahweh, the one who will come in the flesh, loves justice and He is going to come with justice. He loves life and blessing and prosperity and He's going to be coming with that that the whole world might be blessed. And so when a Jew hears of of the Messiah who is coming, which indeed that is what is being pronounced in the very first verse of the New Testament, the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. In other words, people of God, He's here! He's born! Do you know what that means? It means that you... The people of God, the ones that have been chosen through which God's going to redeem the whole world, has arrived. And so now you can go because He is going to reign on His throne. He's among you. He's with you. He is finally among His people again. And so go be about what He's about. Bring His reign to bear wherever you live. Bring love in your relationships, even though there is hatred, even though there there is racism, even though you are betrayed, you are sons and daughters of King Jesus, and you can bring peace where there are riots. You can bring hope where there's hopelessness. You can speak truth where there's falsehood. You can feed the hungry. You can clothe the naked. You can preach good news to the poor. Why? Because your King reigns. The Messiah is here. And He reigns above the world. And He rules even over death. I mean, do you understand that now that, whoa, all of a sudden, if we accept the God of the Old Testament as the God of the New Testament come, that we have purpose. That everything in life, now when I get out of bed, I realize I am an image bearer in God's temple. And so it's my job today to go image Him to the world. It's not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's not about what I want. It's about what He wants because He is King. And He is glorious. And I will find purpose and meaning when my life comes in under His reign. And I say, lead me, King Jesus. Use me, King Jesus. Even if I die, because your ways are right and true all the time. Do you see the beauty and the majesty of King Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham? Jesus has come. Secondly, to get the real picture of what's being said in Matthew and really in, in Luke and John and Mark draw it out too, but I'm not, we don't have time to go into that. 
Jesus is the Messiah King long awaited. The Messiah King's rule brings power for the mission. He brings power for the mission. Man, now that we have this purpose, now we are to be image bearers. Don't you feel weak? Now we're in a battle. How do we fight this battle? He shows us right here. Where does the power come from? He shows us right here in the genealogy. It's interesting, my... I'd say my wife, you know my wife, Rachel, (laughs) spent some time with my sister-in-law a couple weeks ago. I've told you that my brother uh, has been dead now for, I want to say, 10 years. Uh, Either this Christmas will be 10 or 11 years that he took his own life uh, the morning after Christmas. But Rachel came home after spending time with her. And she said, did you know about your Aunt Rose? I, no, I mean, I know that nobody ever really talked about her. She said, I got the story. I said, all right, tell me the story. And the story is my aunt was, was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, and she died in squalor. I'm like, I wondered what happened to her. You know, as little kids, you just don't, I mean, people are around and you don't think about stories. You don't understand why you see some people more than others. It's just kind of the world that you're put in is the world as it is. And so you don't ask many questions. And I thought about that. I thought, how come I never did? I'm 51 years old. How come I never knew that story? Because nobody wants to talk about that story. Because even in our genealogies, we want to lift up the lawyers and the doctors and the politicians and the in some lineages, not mine, but the preachers and and people that, that have respectable jobs and have done respectable things, you see. And, and, and it was that way on steroids for the New Testament people and for the Old Testament people of God. You see, they didn't have resumes. And our resumes, we, we don't put our family anymore. We put, you know, the schools that we went to, the jobs that we've had, our accomplishments, our awards, um, you know, our volunteerism. We don't, we don't even put our family as references. We put, you know, President so-and-so or, you know, the head of so-and-so or, you know. That's our resume, and that's how we try to present ourselves as respectable. But in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament too, the way to do that was through your genealogy. And being in a patriarchal society, you, you primarily mention men. All right? But notice, in, in Jesus' genealogy, he mentions five women. He mentions Tamar, uh, Ruth, Rahab... Um, and Bathsheba, though the name's not mentioned, it's the wife of Uriah, we're going to get to that, and Mary. Now, it wasn't completely ruled out that you, you know, could mention women, but, uh, but really nobody was doing it. And yet the women that he lists um, would have resonated a certain story and aspect to the original readers. Let's just look at Ruth and... Um, um, Rahab, Ruth was uh, a, Mo, uh, a Moabite, and Rahab was a Canaanite. They were racial outcasts in Israel. The Old Testament law said they could not worship, they could not enter the temple. They were racial outcasts, and would always be racial outcasts. So you have racial outcasts in Jesus's gene- genealogy. Well, then you go back and look at Rahab and say, well, she was more than a racial outcast. She was a moral outcast. She was a Jezebel. She was a a prostitute. Um, 
And, and, and yet she is in Jesus' genealogy. Well, you go beyond um, Rahab to Tamar. Uh, look at verse 3. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. Now, that's all he had to say, but he goes on. Whose mother was Tamar? Now, why does he tell us that? Because Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. And in Old Testament law, for a daughter-in-law to sleep with her father-in-law, it was considered incest. And so here you have one who has committed incest. Tamar. So you've got Rahab. You've got Tamar, moral outcast. But then notice um, how, we, how um, Solomon is presented. Verse 6. David was the father of Solomon. Again, he can't just leave it there. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, who is Uriah's wife? It's Bathsheba. She had a name. Why didn't he just say Bathsheba? Because he wanted us to think, ah, yeah, yeah, I remember now. You know, because in the day, everybody was lifting David up as the greatest patriarch of all time, and indeed he may have been. But even David had skeletons in the closet, and they weren't that deep in the closet because God made sure to reveal them in printed word. And what do we see? We see that David one day was not at war, not doing what he should have been doing, but he was walking on his balcony at night. He sees a a very pretty woman, naked, bathing, and he orders her to come up. He abuses his power that he has over her to sleep with her, and she gets pregnant. This is David. And... To try to conceal it, he, he works out some plans and tries to get um, Uriah to come sleep with her so he can say, oh, it's your, your child. They didn't have, you know, Jerry Springer DNA stuff back then. So uh, it would have worked. But Uriah was a righteous man. And he wouldn't sleep with her. And so David did the next, went to the next step and had her killed. I had him killed, excuse me. And do you see what Matthew's doing? Do you see what God's doing? God is clearly stating, and then then he mentions, obviously, Mary. And what is God clearly stating? Those that the Old Testament law rules out, Jesus brings in. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, this would have blown the mind of a Jew. This can't be the Messiah. Look at this genealogy. There's no way that this can be the Messiah. But deep down, sinners would say, yes, this must be the Messiah. But however the original audience was taking it in, they were all asking, what's up with this new king? Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who's going to redeem the world. And we see it even more in the genealogies. I don't know if you um, heard how it ended. We were applauding Kelsey, but listen uh, to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And we go, who cares? But in the Old Testament, he, I mean, this was like, really? I mean, this caught the attention of the Jews. Why? Because seven was a significant number. At the, at, on the seventh day of every week, what were they to do? Rest. 
Everything was to stop and they were to rest. What were they to do on the seventh year? Take a whole year off and rest. Rest even the land. Everything takes a rest. And what were they to do uh, seven times seven? Forty-nine, the fiftieth year. It's the jubilee when land, family land that was distributed among the tribes of Israel, when it, when it was sold, it would go back to the original family. And you say, well, how could you make a profit? How? I mean, who? exactly. You see... Under, under the Jubilee, it was a real redemption. It was a beautiful redemption. If you were a slave, you were freed. If you had uh, land that you had sold, you get it back. This is a freedom of all freedoms. And it, and it fought against the constant, relentless buying and selling and making profit while others suffered. It leveled the playing field again. Well, then you go to Daniel. Hang with me. I promise. We're getting there. Daniel um, 9. Listen to this prophecy in Daniel 9 that all Jews knew. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy times seven, 490 years. That's a long time to wait. But what's the point? That at the end of these 490 years, this must be the jubilee of all jubilees. This must be the redemption of all redemption. And dear friends, this is the prophecy. It, 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 he tells it not by sevens, but by fourteens. Two sevens, obviously, in each fourteen. That this is the prophecy of Daniel. This is the fulfillment. The Messiah has come. And real redemption. A redemption like we've never understood, we've never experienced, but we've been longing for for all these years, has come. The forgiveness of sin, the atoning of sin... Righteousness among us. Healing of the land. Do you see this holistic, beautiful picture? This contradicts the message of our day. The message of our day is believe in yourself. That's the gospel of our culture. Believe in yourself. And every false teaching has a a, a strain of truth to it. And the truth to that is that, yes, we are to believe, but we are not to believe in ourselves. I looked up some quotes this week I thought were kind of catchy and probably stuff that we post on Facebook. Here's one from Joy Bell. The only person who can pull me down is myself, and I'm not going to let myself pull me down anymore. Like, share, you know. Here's another one. Your time is way too valuable to be wasting on people that can't accept who you are. Oh, yeah, oh, double like, double share, put a little comment on top. I am through with you. You may be the only person left who believes in you, but it's enough. It just takes one star to pierce a universe of darkness. Never give up. That's my personal favorite. I mean, there's something in this that does resonate. 
We want to live above what we feel. We want to, to do beyond what we know are our capabilities. But believing in ourselves is not the answer. The Messiah stood among God's people and said, Believe in God and believe also in me. Why is that? Because we see right here from the boring, endless genealogies that Jesus drips grace. Do you want to know what power is for the mission? It's not believing in yourself, but it's believing that God loves a self, you, that doesn't deserve it. That he knows you perfectly. He knows all of your sin, all that you've ever committed, all that you're committing right now, and all that you're planning to commit tomorrow. And he says, I choose you and I love you. And I give myself for you. It's the lovely's life for the unlovely. It's my life for yours. And that's what we need. We don't need to believe in ourselves. We need to believe that the God of the universe loves us and makes us righteous and holy, that He literally came down as the Messiah King, and He lived under the law. Oh, how beautiful. He did the law. He obeyed the law because He knew I could never do it. And therefore, God doesn't judge me in light of the law. He judges me in light of the righteousness of Jesus. And then He takes my sin and He puts it on the Messiah King. And God the Father judges my sin on Jesus. So now I'm not only forgiven, but I'm loved in an everlasting way. And that is power to get into the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ in our day and to go out and to be the healing, renewing presence of Jesus in our world, in our marriage, in our friendships, in our work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our country, in our world. World. We should be, we should be consumed with the needs of our world. We should, we should care about what is going on in Chicago. We should care about what's going on in Syria. We should care about what's going on in our world. Why? Because we, like our Savior, loves justice and truth, and we, like our Savior, want to bring healing. It bothers us. We lose sleep over the fact that there are children who are not being educated. That there are people living in substandard housing just right next door to us. That there are hungry people. That there are starving people. That there are people who are trapped in in communities of violence. These things should matter. It it should matter to us that that among the rich that, that, that there is corruption. It should matter to us that when loans are given, they're given to people who really can't afford it. It should matter to us that people are cashing checks and taking more of the check than anybody. These things should matter to us. Why? Because Jesus is king, and when Jesus is king, nobody goes to bed hungry. Nobody goes to bed naked. Well, maybe some of you do. That sounded a little weird, didn't it? I'm just going to say it before you say it. You get my point, though. Oh, my goodness. I told you my job's hard. There it is. It should bother us of how many people are in jail and how many of those people are African-American it should bother us that policemen were shot and killed in Colorado. It's all. 
We live in an unfair and a sinful world, but we are to matter to the world because King Jesus reigns. Does the world know that King Jesus reigns by the church? Uh, What does the world think about Jesus in light of how we live? Do you see the difference of, oh yeah, I'm saved, I've got that eternity thing done now, you know, he's going to help me now as I do my agenda to build my career? No. Have you ever asked God what your career should be? Have you ever asked God what you should do with your money, not just 10%, but all of it? Do you see the difference? And notice that this Jesus who comes and he's not ashamed to call you his brother, as Hebrew 2 tells us. He's not ashamed. I mean, look at the people in his genealogy and he says, hey, even you could be there. And I'd print it. I'd print it. Because I'm not ashamed of you. It's almost like he's proud of these things. But notice how long it took. It took forever. Do you know this declaration has come 400 years, after 400 years of silence? Are you frustrated with the timing of God? Have you waited 400 years yet? I mean, do you see it? But guess what? God is going to do what He promises. But you can be sure it's not like you plan it. And it's not like you assume it's going to happen. And it's not according to your watch nor your timetable. It's according to Him and He's right and He's good all the time. Do you see it in the genealogy? And then finally and briefly... The Messiah King's power is rooted in history and this world. Notice, this is awesome. Notice how the genealogy starts. I've said it numerous times. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. But notice how it does not start. Once upon a time. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know what this means? This means that this is truth. This is history. This is a few thousand years of history. This is saying this Messiah comes in the midst of this world, in the midst of her history. This God is, 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 is care, He cares about this world so much so that He would come and live in it. This is heresy in any other religion. And yet God became man in the flesh to be in this world to redeem this world. I read an article this week that there is a revival going on among the Muslim people around the world. That even a Muslim, Muslim clerics are recognizing it. One Muslim cleric wrote this. When we realize that the entire population of Africa is one billion people, we see that the number of Muslims has diminished greatly from what it was in the beginning of the last century. As to how that happened, well, there are now one and a half million churches in Africa whose congregations account for 46 million people. In every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. These numbers are very large indeed. 
one of those converts wrote this, or said this. He said, when I contrasted the evidence for Christianity against the evidence for Islam, I knew that intellectually there was no comparison. So I asked God to reveal himself to me in truth, through dreams and visions. All those things combined with actually reading the Bible are what drove me forward to the point of accepting Christ. Isn't that interesting? What, what convinced him? Ultimately, we know the Spirit of Christ. But what, convinced, what got his attention? This is rooted in history. So much so that it cannot be denied. Certainly it can be argued against, but it cannot be utterly disproven. It's rooted in history. Just go to the resurrection. There were 500 witnesses. Why didn't all the other religions trying to sprout up during that time and before and after take the world over? Because there were always witnesses saying, that's just a bunch of lies. How in the world... Can you get away with Jesus went in the tomb and came out of the tomb three days later that he died but he rose unless it was true when you had all these witnesses. When you had people watching him, when you had people wanting, committing everything and every fiber in their being to disproving his teaching and disproving that he's the Messiah. The only answer is it happened. Do you see it? It's getting my hair cut. Doesn't it look nice? Saturday. I was thinking about this. The the woman, maybe I shouldn't, she could be here this morning. This could be bad. Um, Let me tell you a different story. Uh, I was somewhere this week. uh, And I really did think about it on several different occasions. I was somewhere buying something this week, and I was th- this this truth just kept coming over me. And I, I was thinking as I'm looking at the people in the store, and I'm checking out. I'm thinking Jesus is the truth for this person's life. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they believe. I don't know. But all I know is that if they would bow their knee to Jesus. And if they would give their life to Jesus, that their life would come in order and they would find love and meaning and purpose like nothing else has ever given them. Why? Because this encompasses the entire world. This is historically true. And so, dear friends, as we leave today, are we convinced that Jesus is the Messiah? Not just our personal Savior who saved us from our sin. That's incredibly good. But do we believe that He's the Messiah King and will we go out and say, King Jesus, command me. King Jesus, rule me. King Jesus, tell me what to do about my marriage. Tell me what to do about my money. Tell me what to do about my singleness. Tell me what to do with my sex. Tell me what to do with everything I have because it's yours. Command me, King Jesus, because my life is all about you and it's all about your world mission and not about me and my little goals. Dear friends, is that our hope? That's what we declare at Christmas that it is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are king of the world. You're king of the universe. You command angels. You command planets. So, Father, we just pray this morning that our hearts would be filled with King Jesus. 
that we would be filled with his love that would include the likes of us in his genealogy that loved sinners and came for sinners to empower us for mission and purpose. And may we live to reflect your image throughout this world. Oh God, give us your grace to do just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.